Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. Please note that this episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this week we have Scott Seaman with us and we'll be looking at some of the issues that insurers are currently facing in the US. Scott is a partner at Hinshaw and Culbertson where he is co-chair of the Global Insurance Services Practice Group. Scott has specialised in insurance virtually since leaving law school. He is a prolific writer on insurance law and his writings have been cited in the highest courts in eight different US states. He's also the host of Hinshaw's Insurance Law Radio, so we are today dealing with a professional. Uh, And he also, I have to say, sports the finest moustache this side of Tom Selleck. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be on, and I never get an introduction uh, that grand in the U.S., so it's great to be here visiting you folks in London. Thank you. And um, I, I note from LinkedIn that your your degree was in business and economics, um, but did you ever consider any career other than as an attorney, and, and how did you get into insurance law? Well, I wanted to be a, uh, a movie star and actor, but... The only calls I ever got from Hollywood were to invest in films. And then I wanted to go and become a basketball player, but my height kind of didn't, uh, it didn't pan out well. So I had no choice but to go into law. Um, well, our topic for today uh, is an overview of some of the issues facing uh, insurers at the moment. Um, but in particular, we want to be discussing three broad topics. Uh, the first one is uh, social inflation. The second is bad faith, uh, and the third is is punitive damages. Um, So let's start with social inflation. Um, Please could you talk us through what you mean by that and and what what impact it is having on insurers? Sure. You know, generally it references the notion that the cost to insurers associated with claims, both indemnity and defense, is increasing. Uh, It's been a problem in the U.S., for my entire 32-year career and then beyond because of some factors unique to the U.S. system. Uh, And it's not really a global issue, uh, but I think still the impact on insurers writing in the U.S. is the greatest. It stems from the fact that you get large compensatory awards in the U.S. uh, traditionally uh, because, in part, we have a jury system. Uh, You have... uh, the potential we'll talk about later for punitive damages and conflicting decisional authority, uh, given our system of 50 states plus federal versus state law, the availability of class actions and multi-district litigation modes of joinder that, that resemble class actions here. And you have a very well-funded plaintiff's bar. So you have those factors at play. We have a lot of uh, pre-trial discovery in the U.S. Uh, that's broader than in the U.K., so it's not just documents. It's depositions of fact witnesses, depositions of experts in addition to uh, document discovery and interrogatories and uh, physical exams of, of patients or property. So that adds greatly to the cost 
cost of litigation just from a process standpoint, but also it provides plaintiffs with the opportunity to get discovery and discover their way into a cause of action or into more damages as a result. So it burdens insurers and it benefits policyholders, at least in the context of insurance litigation. I mean, a lot of these things are things which have existed in the U.S. system for for years and years and years. Are are there things which are specifically making things worse at the moment? Sure, and they have existed for years, and that's why going back to the 80s, there's been a lot of effort at tort reform in the U.S. with mixed success. But then you superimpose on those things that are unique to the U.S. system of justice or the tort liability system to things that are at play here in the U.K. as well. So, for example, in the U.S., attorney advertising is prolific. After midnight, there's nothing but lawyers' ads that serves as a recruitment tool. Good reason to go to bed, then. It certainly is. Although, if if you don't, it will put you to sleep. (laughs) Uh, The the other thing is litigation funding, where you have uh, private entities, corporate money, funding litigation. Uh, With litigation funding, uh, the the plaintiffs, the claimants get money up front so they don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to come up empty or roll the dice on getting a verdict that's greater than what a settlement can be. It increases the numbers of claims, and it increases uh, the ability to go deeper into the litigation, to, uh, especially if the damages or the injuries are severe, to retain the experts, build the case up, and not have to settle more cheaply. So I think it's causing uh, plaintiffs in general, and particularly with strong cases, to uh, take the case to trial and to verdict. And that presumably increases costs, and uh, so it makes them more aggressive, and it increases costs at the same time. And you have other factors at play, you know, political discourse. You have discourse on issues, socialism, gaining traction in the U.S., uh, sharing the wealth, Mm. uh, those sorts of things which come into play. And so one of the results is we're seeing jurors who are more willing to focus on needing to compensate people who are injured rather than focusing on the fault. Exactly. And and is this much the same across all the states or or are some worse than others? Some are worse than others, but it's a phenomenon that we're also seeing, you know, really across the world when you have social media, you have people, you probably experience this here, anti-corporate, anti-insurer sentiment within society as a whole saying, you know, distrust for corporations. Uh, in the U.S. fueled by, uh, you know, the financial crisis, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and just having uh, different social media, which is a place for people to collect grievances. And uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so with all that at play, you really have, and we've seen some jury studies that are very troubling, that a very high percentage of jurors in some studies have had a willingness to go with their own beliefs of right and wrong over what the judge instructs them as to what the law is. Yeah. So the so this is what we mean by social inflation, the effect of society on inflating claims against insurers, effectively. Yes. Um, and the increasing pressure on, on insurers in that situation. So is there anything that insurers can do to protect themselves or, or fight back? There's a lot of things, but if I could just one quick Sorry, point, which is, you know, that there's social inflation or jury run, runaway verdict problems, even in the first instance in underlying litigation that are experienced by the defendants. 
uh, who happen to be generally insured. And so the, the insurers are getting whammy twice. First, yeah. the impact of the underlying tort verdicts. But then secondly, you know, when there's coverage litigation, not only do you have a plaintiff-friendly jurisdiction for underlying cases, you've got in a lot of places that are policyholder-friendly jurisdictions on coverage issues. And so they interpret coverage broadly and exclusions narrowly. And so uh, insurers imp- feel the impact of social inflation that way. So it's also a, a function back, in fact, in the 70s, uh, Warren Buffett defined social inflation, but he really focused on the aspect of what a society views to be covered by insurance or not. So there is the coverage aspect. Okay, so um, kind of uh, what can insurers do about that, if anything? Well, most importantly, insurers are always faced with these challenge or in challenges. We're always viewed as the bad guy, the, the deep pocket. And it's the talented people, the men and women that work for insurance companies that always find a way to go through these challenges. And it's really needed for society because if you take insurance out of the equation, the economies through all of our countries would really tank. And so some of the things are the standard things of better analysis of claims, more discipline in underwriting, raising the cost of insurance premiums, making adjustments to limits, including sublimits, making changes to policies to reflect some of these trends, having the claims professionals and the lawyers that are retained that are top shelf, that are adroit at dealing with all these issues and making the best out of them. Long term, it means insurers continuing to attract, retain and train talented people. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, moving on to our, our second topic then, which is which is bad faith. So could you first of all explain what the principle of bad faith is in, in simple terms, particularly bearing in mind that this is a podcast for general insurance issues rather than insurance law. So trying to avoid getting too technical with us, but but what is bad faith in, in insurance law? So let's distinguish it for a moment. Insurers in the liability property casualty setting typically have two duties, a duty to defend and the duty to indemnify or pay for settlements or judgments. And insurers can breach those duties without it being bad faith. They could just get it wrong. Their interpretation of the policy may not be believed. That's not bad faith. Bad faith is a cause of action, and it's really a shorthand reference for the breach of the duty of good faith and fair dealings, which is under most states' laws implicit in the contractual relationship, the insurer-insured relationship. So let, let's say, for example, you deny coverage because you feel that a, an exclusion applies. You may be wrong on that. That's not bad faith. As long as in most states there's doctrines talking about either a genuine dispute or fairly debatable or reasonable. In other words, you may not be right in your coverage determination, but as long as it's reasonable, it's supportable, the issue is subject to fair debate, you're generally not subject to bad faith. Yeah. So can you give us some examples maybe of recent cases in which bad faith was considered? Just to give us a flavor of what it looks like in the real world. I'll give you a recent example uh, because it's one that I think uh, pushes the envelope a little bit. There was a case where a uh, landowner was shooting and had hit people shooting guns on his property and bullet fragments went to the adjoining property, which was, I guess, 500 or, or more yards away. Yeah. The neighbor brought a suit and the insurer uh, denied coverage to the property owner on whose property the bullets were emanating from. And 
In doing so, uh, there were multiple causes of action asserted, Mm -hmm. and the insurer in its denial letter, even if you accepted what it said, it did not negate the potential for there being coverage, and if there's a potential for coverage, there's a duty to defend. So the court determined that this particular insurer did not investigate, did not articulate the basis for the denial of the defense adequately, and that it didn't have adequate grounds to deny the defense because at least a couple of the causes of action, trespassing and nuisance, would have been potentially covered. So the court ruled on summary judgment, so before trial, that the insurer breached its duty to defend. Okay, but... But But it went further than that. Yes, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it said it committed bad faith as a matter of law because it failed to adequately explain and provide its basis or have an adequate basis for its determination and that the insurer put its interests above the interest of the policyholder and making that determination. So the court said as a matter of law, it's bad faith. The court again focused on what the insurer didn't do, that it didn't have reasonable grounds, that it acted contrary to a Washington Supreme Court case, and that it put its interest above the interest of the policy. Okay, so so it's not simply a situation of the insurer got it wrong because that in itself isn't enough. But they did it. They, they got it wrong, and there was an added extra. Exactly. There, it, was, there, there was something there was suggested. It was yeah. It was yeah. it was more than just getting it wrong. It was kind of getting it wrong. Put, as you say, putting their own interests without having an adequate basis. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, for what for exactly. what it did. But but I suppose that the, a long way of saying unreasonable, but unreasonable as a matter of law, which is you know the the part of the decision I question. Yeah, and, and as ever, there's that there's that borderline between okay, at what point does it cease to be reasonable and become unreasonable, and right. that's that's well. And usually, that's quite it's literally the million dollar question. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, Washington has a couple of particular statutes dealing with uh, claims handling and consumer transactions, and the court also found that those statutes were violated as a matter of law. One of which subjected the insurer to treble or three times damages, as well as attorney's fees. So what can insurers do to reduce the chance uh, of an allegation of, of bad faith? And, and the, a fair answer would be a 30-minute answer, but, <laughs> but uh, the, the short answer would be to review claims, to investigate them promptly and to articulate your basis for your coverage determination. And to make sure that articulation has some validity. And make sure it has validity, that you can articulate a basis and it's a basis that has support in it. There's a whole bunch of things you could do to minimize bad faith liability. There's not, your question was to reduce the allegations. There's nothing an insurer can do really to prevent there from being allegations of bad faith. Because I suppose any insured who's had their policy taken away from them is going to accuse the insurer of bad faith. I mean, way too often that does happen. Um, And and presumably, kind of low-level claims handlers make sure they get their management and maybe even management management to to review and approve any coverage decisions. Right, and where appropriate when you're dealing with legal issues and you're dealing with complex claims and you're dealing with, you know, the uh, legal rulings that may come into play, obviously, having input from counsel. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, communicate clearly, follow your internal guidelines, you have internal guidelines established that 
it'll comply with state insurance regulations as well as uh, you know having best practices in place. Train training people goes a long way as well. Yeah. Um, the other element of U.S. law, which is which we don't see so much of or at all in, in U.K. law, is punitive damages. And first of all, I, I'm, am I right in thinking that punitive damages can be described as damages that exceed mere compensation? So, so they, they go beyond compensating right. the, the victim, the injured party, the insured, whoever it might be. It goes beyond that. And when might insurers be exposed to punitive damages? And, and is it tied in with bad faith or is it separate from bad faith? Well, it, it's generally tied in. So it, there's sort of a continuum. You've breached your duty to defend or indemnify. There are damages associated with that, typically compensatory damages, which sometimes can be broader than what you might think. Uh, in some states, it could be emotional damages for individuals. It could be loss of business profit or yeah. those sorts of things for companies. So then bad faith, if there is a finding of bad faith, that in and of itself does not translate into a punitive damages award. There must yet be more. If there must be a state of mind, of malice, of intent to defraud, of utter disregard for the rights of the policyholder. So an enhanced mens rea, if you will, or mental uh, state on the part of the insurer. So presumably, that, uh, when you say on, on the part of the insurer, that's presumably on the part of the, the individual claims handler. It, it might be the individual claims handler. There's something called institutional bad faith, where the company's practices uh, or their, their course of dealings or their handling gets beyond a particular claim or call into question. And so you have you know a broader or institutional basis for liability. But yes, there's more that there's a state of mind. So because punitive damages are there to not compensate, but to punish. And so once you get beyond, you get to that showing uh, or that issue of state of mind, you know, there still are defenses to that. That Again, we may have been wrong, but we didn't have any ill motive or ill intent. What what sort of level of of awards are we talking about? Are they small or large? Are they a slap on the wrist or a decapitation? They can range from both. I mean, first of all, both on the compensatory and punitive sides, we see all sorts of very large, what appear to be excessive verdicts and, you know, particularly punitive. So we've seen, you know, cases of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars and sometimes beyond that in terms of what the number is. And so obviously... There are some guideposts. The U.S. Supreme Court has set three. You look at the reprehensibility, for example. What was the damages? You know, typically, you know, an award in excess of three times the actual damages would be unconstitutional. And by the way, various states, as a matter of either state constitutional law or state statute, have caps and limits on the amount of punitive damages. But, but, but nonetheless, three times is uh, is quite a punishment. And in some instances, you could argue that that uh, an equal amount of punitives could be excessive as a matter of constitutional or just state law. Okay, that's very helpful. And and presumably, you know, the sorts of things that we've talked about previously are the sorts of things where insurers can protect themselves here as well. So you make sure you follow the rules, internal guidelines, follow the series of management and and going to outside counsel to get advice. Presumably all of those things will kind of help. All of those things and then, of course... 
when you're defending one of these cases as counsel, you need to make sure you're preserving all appropriate objections along the lines because other than if it's just a matter of the excessive amount of the punitive damages and a question of constitutionality, arguably that can't be waived. But there are lots of other defenses along the lines that, you know, if you don't assert them at the proper time, they could be waived. We're obviously coming to the end of, of the podcast, and I'm really appreciative of your time. But I'm also keen, kind of very briefly, to get your views on what are, what are the likely to be the, the emerging themes in US claims over the next few years? Well, that, that's a beautiful question because we salivate over what the next problems in huge areas of litigations and claims activity will be. You know, certainly cyber is front and center on everybody's page. We're seeing wildfires. We're seeing nanotechnology. Climate change has not proven to be the bastion of a large number of claims that make it to the coverage stage. But we'll wait and see. Self-driving vehicles will be something. I think people will be watching. Always drugs and pharmaceuticals. You know, right now, opioid litigation is a major concern. So there should be enough to keep you busy for a few more years yet. Uh, We're hoping so. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I I always ask my guests for one bit of advice that they would give to someone starting out in insurance. And just wondering, what, what would yours be? You've got to love it. And I, I think it applies to any area that you practice. And you know, to be good at it, you have to be committed to it, spend a lot of time and effort, be a student of whatever area you are. And to do all that, you really have to love the area. And I always think the thing that separates us from other firms in doing what we do is our knowledge, our thought leadership, our mastery of the subject. But the fact that we love it and we, we not only try and help our clients, we love them. We want to make sure that we're making their jobs easier as claims professionals. You know, they're getting claims, they're getting litigation, which aren't typically fun things. They're problems. We have to help them solve it, make it as easy for them as possible. And if you can't chase yesterday's issues, you have to be on the forefront and you have to know what the trends are, uh, what what our clients need, what their portfolio interests are. And more and more, you know, when you're working on major claims, you're dealing not in a situation where a client just says, here's the claim or here's the litigation, handle it. It's really a collaborative process. Yeah. And and as you say, it, it's got to be something that you have a degree of passion in um, and love. So, Scott, that was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I'm so grateful to you for spending time with us. And Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts, and of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes. Thank you.